Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Raven. I want to tell you more about my sponsor, Studio. I have a great pair of their Regent headphones, which are Bluetooth-enabled. I've had Bluetooth headphones before, but I would have to switch back to my old earbuds every time the battery ran down. So battery life was the first thing I tested on the Regents. I pulled them right out of the box and connected them to my phone, and kept them running. It was nearly 48 hours before the gentle beeps started telling me that they were running low. And the nice thing is, if I forgot to charge them, there is a cable that plugs right into the headphone jack. This means you have great sounding audio for as long as you would care to listen. If you would like to get your own pair of these headphones, you can get 15% off by using my code TINY when you check out at studiosweden.com. That's studio, like studio without the T, sweden.com. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 16 which is the first of a two-part series suggested by Benjamin Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. He asked, How do public health authorities use urban planning to control populations of biting insects? Let's start off by going over what urban planning is. It's the development of plans and programs for the use of land. It can include anything from creating communities which accommodate growth or revitalizing facilities that are already in the urban areas. Planners work with a lot of different organizations to solve community problems. Ben asked this question because his day job is urban planning. He sums up his job as, quote, What we actually do is translate professional jargon between the different professions. Like if you have different kinds of engineers, community advocates, and politicians at a table. They're going to talk past each other, unless you have a planner there. We are like public policy doulas. End quote. Many cities around the world are growing upward and outward. As they do, 
Urban pests like bedbugs and human-loving mosquitoes thrive in the crowded and sheltered conditions. In the tropics, new developments sometimes are not supported by utilities. Unregulated building construction can lead to homes where adult mosquitoes can come and go through windows and unsealed roofs. No public water utilities mean people store water around their house to avoid endless trips to the local water pump. These water storage containers can become perfect home for mosquito larvae. With no utilities, waste builds up around homes, which can also collect water, providing yet more breeding sites, as mosquito larvae can live in volumes as small as a water-filled plastic bottle cap. Public health officials would see these problems and engage urban planners, who would in turn work with non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, to provide window screens and sealant for the homes, engineers to develop a clean, reliable water supply, and the local government to provide trash removal. This is not only a developing world problem, though. As cities expand, they often expand into either wilderness or rural farming areas. This disrupts local ecosystems and puts people into contact with wildlife. In Australia, people like to live along the coasts, which are mostly covered by wetlands. The humans are caught in the crossfire between mosquitoes and the kangaroos, birds, and wallabies they normally feed on, resulting in humans becoming infected with Ross River, Barma Forest, or Murray Valley encephalitis viruses. Urban planners are informed of the problem by public health officials and incorporate designs like screened outdoor recreation areas and large buffer zones between the wetland and the new housing developments. As you can tell from these examples, much of the time, planners work As you can tell from these examples, much of the time when planners work on communicable diseases, or diseases that can be caught as opposed to something like diabetes, they are working on water problems. Lots of diseases can be transmitted through drinking contaminated water, but there are also vectors that live in the water, such as mosquitoes, snails, tiny crustaceans, and black flies. Our paper today is titled Water Resources Management and Health, General Remarks and a Case Study from Cameroon by R. Slutwick out of the Netherlands back in 1991. Cameroon is a Central African country. It's shaped a bit like a tadpole swimming south. The tail extends up between Nigeria to the west and Chad to the east. At the base of the tail is the Benue River, which had a large floodplain. During this time, only 2% of the water in Africa was being used by humans. But as the populations grew, the people needed more access to water, space, and food. A dam was built to control the water to be used for crop irrigation and provide farmland for the people in the former floodplain. The Cameroonian government learned from the past. During the first attempt at construction of the Panama Canal in the 1880s, the project was abandoned 
when two massive outbreaks hit at once, yellow fever and malaria, both of which are transmitted by mosquitoes. When they struck, they killed 22,000 workers, which led to the bankruptcy of the entire project. The U.S. later restarted the project, and by the time they were finished, 98% of the workforce had contracted malaria. This was despite the reported use of 124,000 gallons of insecticide. The Cameroonians also learned from a much closer, more recent tragedy in Burkina Faso in the late 50s and early 60s. An irrigation scheme went wrong, accidentally creating the perfect habitat for black flies. Black flies, like mosquitoes, spend their young life in the water, and when they emerge as adults, they can transmit a parasitic worm when biting people and drinking their blood. Because black flies live in flowing water, and the worms can cause irreversible eye damage, this disease is called river blindness. Just 18 years after the start of the project, 80% of people in the region over the age of 40 were blind. When water is managed, it can inadvertently result in booms in disease transmission because it turns seasonal floodplains into year-round vector breeding sites. Water management also allows for growth in the human population, which increases the number of people exposed to those viruses. So the Cameroonian government brought in the Swiss non-for-profit organization Doctors Without Borders who set up public health workers and primary care facilities. But, as they point out in the paper, the ecosystem and health are the only things affected. The social systems of the people living around the Benue River also changed. While people living in the area above the dam had access to fish from the new reservoir year-round, those who lived downstream used to be able to rely on ponds that would fill with fish during the seasonal flood. Although not consistent, although not consistent throughout the year, these fish were an important source of food. The dam was an engineering success. Flooding was controlled, and the floodplain was converted into productive, irrigated farmland. But this irrigated land was producing mosquitoes, and people were starting to get malaria. Aquatic snails also took up residence in these waterways. The snails are used by parasitic worms as a nursery. Once these blood flukes are old enough, they leave the snail and break through the skin of humans wading or bathing in the water. The disease they cause is called schistosomiasis. Once the worms break through the skin, they enter the bloodstream, where they live by absorbing nutrients from the blood around them. They can cause serious problems with spleen, liver, and kidneys, as all of these organs filter the blood. If left untreated, schistosomiasis can cause terrible outcomes, such as bladder cancer and infertility. The people could go to the clinic for treatment, but they were in a cycle. They would catch schistosomiasis while working in their irrigated fields or wake up with a burning fever after being bit by a malarial mosquito. 
they would go to the clinic and get treated, but then go back to their farms for it to happen again. The irrigation system was built by the Chinese government, but they did not feel that public health was their responsibility. They were engineers, after all, not public health workers. Enter yet another country, and the author of this paper. Researchers from the University of Leiden, funded by the Dutch government, tried an experiment in urban planning. They knew any changes they made would not be maintained by the irrigation authorities, the public health workers, or even the regional government. The local people themselves would need to find any change worth the hard work of maintenance. Two things were important to the farmers. They no longer had access to their traditional fish diet, and they and their families were getting sick. The proposed urban planning solution was to use the fields for both agriculture and aquaculture at the same time, digging some of the irrigation ditches deeper and keeping them full of water would allow the farmers to stock them with fish. When the farmers flooded their rice fields, the fish would leave the ditch and go to work eating mosquitoes and snails. When the fields weren't flooded, the local families would eat the fish. The community's reaction to the experiment was encouraging, but as the experiment was only a year old when Slutwig wrote the paper, I think that the answer was up to the people in the end. This paper is just one example, but from what I learned about urban planning, I think the answer to the question, how do public health authorities use urban planning to control the population of biting insects, is that they use integration between many different fields to see many different problems at once, which possibly allows them to solve multiple problems at once. The other disciplines in the paper were single-mindedly focused on the job at hand, which is great. But this work also showed that it is good to have people around who can look at the bigger picture. Next month's topic is the second part of this series suggested by Benjamin Jacobs. What can be done by urban planners to disrupt infection of people with Lyme disease? While Ben and I were discussing the topic request, we got to talking about all of the times he came across diseases in his research for his history podcast, Wittenberg to Westphalia. The topic is really interesting, so we decided to put together a bonus episode, which will be published on both of our feeds. As always, I want to know what you guys want to hear about, so if you have any questions about anything from malarial marches to smallpox, shoot either myself or Benjamin a message on Facebook by searching for our respective podcast names. While you're there, I hope you will join the Agora Listener Forum. It is a place on Facebook for Agora listeners and hosts to discuss whatever they have on their mind. It's really fun, and there's lots of really thoughtful, intelligent people, just like yourself, there, so come and make some new friends. I hope that you found and continue to find this podcast informative. The webpage for this episode has links to more information about all of the diseases I talked about today, more about the tragic story of the construction of the Panama Canal, 
and other show notes and music credits. Tweet me topic suggestions for this show or the early modern period diseases that you want to hear about in my crossover episode at tinyvampirespod. Don't forget to rate and review Tiny Vampires on your podcatcher. Thank you for listening. From me, Raven Forrest Rizgalzo, Masters of Science student at the University of Notre Dame and funded by the National Science Foundation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.